while you're turning to Genesis chapter 50, I want to tell you a few stories that are going to be littered out throughout this sermon, um, and they're going to get deeper and deeper as we go. So the first one um, is about my childhood. So I grew up in a household with two brothers. I was the youngest of three, so I'm the baby of the family. Um, eventually we would get a third brother and I would not be the baby anymore, but at this time it was me. So there was only two times a year where you could get something you really wanted because money was tight. We didn't have a lot. So you only had two opportunities to get something really cool as a kid. It was either Christmas or your birthday. And I remember it was my birthday, a little after my birthday. And I had to really make it count the thing I was getting. So, you know, I remember my mom took me or one of my family members to the toy store or something like that. And I was like, okay, I got to make this count. This has to last me pretty much the whole year in terms of it being fun. So I'm looking around and, you know, I loved Legos back then. So I was like, I got to get a Lego set. I got to get the coolest Lego set that I could possibly find. So I got myself a Viking ship. It was just the coolest thing ever. It had all these little people with it. It had like a sea serpent. Like y'all are hearing this and you're thinking, I don't want to sit here. I want to play with the Viking boat that Pastor Aaron had. And I agree. So I feel you on that. But I got this boat and I had it for a few months. My brothers helped me build it. It was just the coolest thing ever. And um, I remember my little cousin came over. And the thing you know, if you have little siblings, is your little siblings just want to touch everything that's yours. And that can get really annoying. As I said, I was usually the baby of the family. But this time, I am kind of having the older brother role to my little cousin. He comes in my room, and he, you know, eyes just dart right to my new Lego set. <clears throat> And I do what any reasonable person would do at 11 years of age, and I told him to get lost. <laughs> told him to leave me alone, leave my stuff alone, don't you ever touch it. And of course, my mom hears about this, and my mom does what most moms would do and says, Aaron, you have to let him play with your Lego set. Of course, I roll my eyes, I'm, you know, angry, frustrated, but I'm like, okay, if you're going to play with it, you got to do it the exact way I want you to do it. So don't pick it up. Don't break anything off of it. Like I just, I put it on the floor and I was like, don't move it, but you can like touch it and play with it. So I get up and I'm like, okay, as long as he doesn't move it, everything should be okay. There's no way to break it if he doesn't move it. So then I go and I get something to drink real quick and I come back and you know how the story ends. The Lego set is in a million pieces on my floor and I swear to you, he must have eaten some of them because I never could put that thing back together. I tried for like a year trying to put that together with the instructions. It never came to fruition. So, you know, this is just a little funny story to tell. And it's one I think about often when I think about this theme that runs in Joseph's life of forgiveness. I tell it because, you know, it's lighthearted. It's, you know, it happened a long time ago. And... I'm really close to forgiving my brother. I mean, my cousin, I promise. I'm getting really close. So, you know, I'm working on that part. But you see, you're sitting here today and I'm standing here today 
because all of us have a problem with forgiveness. And you might be saying to yourself, you know, Pastor Aaron, no offense, you don't know me well enough um, to say that I have a problem with forgiveness. The other day, you know, someone cut me off in traffic and I didn't yell at them or anything like that. And I'm doing really good on the forgiveness part. But the thing is, most of us think of forgiveness in a very insignificant way, just like the story I told. There's nothing significant about a little Lego set, and there's nothing significant about, you know, how long ago it happened or anything like that. We tend to take forgiveness not very seriously in our lives. It's easy for us to think of forgiveness this way in such small little ways. It's easy because we don't have to properly address the issue. You see, Joseph grew up with 11 different brothers, not just two. He was the second youngest, so he had 10 older brothers. Um, his father is one of the more complex characters in the Bible. We don't really have a lot of time to get into that today, but here's a little, few little things that are important about him. Jacob is what, he is a part of what is called the Abrahamic Covenant. This is when God shows up, he says that he's the God of three people in the Old Testament. He says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Abrahamic Covenant goes something along the lines of, you will have a lot of kids and you will have a land that you will call your own. It will be a land that blesses others. So Jacob is a part of that lineage. And not only that, his children are a part of the lineage as well, which means they have a big pair of shoes to fill. I mean, to be called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, another name for Jacob is actually Israel. That's how much he is of importance. But Joseph does a really good job at filling these shoes. As a matter of fact, he does pretty much everything a son should do. He helps around the fields. He does all the herding and livestock. I mean, he does everything that a father would ask him to do, so much so that he becomes the favorite of Jacob. Jacob then gives him a special cloak, one that is specifically made for him. Um, and of course, his brothers don't like this that much. Um, so much so that they get fed up, and at first, they want to kill him. They say to themselves, okay, this Joseph guy, our brother, our little brother, is so annoying that we're just going to throw him in a ditch, and we're going to kill him. And one of the brothers, I think probably one of the more reasonable ones, is like, okay, we probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> but he says, let's just throw him in the ditch and just leave him there. Just let him, you know, figure his own way out. Um, but then they kind of settle on selling him into slavery instead for 20 pieces of silver. Now, a lot of us can't imagine our siblings selling us into slavery, but a lot of us can identify with the fact that we have had times where someone has betrayed us. Suddenly, for Joseph, forgiveness is not just a little broken Lego set. The brothers then tell Jacob, Joseph's father, he's not here, and not only is he not here, he's dead. He's gone, so don't even try looking for him. Gone forever. 
Let's reread Genesis chapter 50, verse 21 here, if we can, real quick. Let's read. Joseph says, do not fear, for I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. How do we get from Joseph being a slave to Joseph being a forgiver? As we said, Joseph is sold into slavery, and then he starts working under Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of the Egyptian guard. He has a pretty high status in Egyptian society. Once he starts working for Potiphar, he gets a really good relationship with him, which is quite rare in ancient times. I mean, there was huge class differences, but Joseph even excels under slavery. They have a good relationship. They become friends. But of course, more trouble is around the corner because Potiphar's wife is attracted to Joseph. So much so that she attempts to force herself on him. And when he denies her advances, he's falsely accused of assault. All this happens and Potiphar throws Joseph into prison. And it seems like Joseph now is going to die. I know it's a little small, but let me read for you in Genesis 39, 12 through 20. She, Potiphar's wife, caught his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled out of his house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men, that is her guards of her household, and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. It's one bad thing after another, it seems, for Joseph's life. His father loved him. His brothers get jealous. They seek out revenge. They sell him into slavery. And not even there is Joseph safe as a slave. He can't even do that right because then we have another moment where Potiphar's wife tricks him and now he's in prison waiting to die. Bad news after bad news. However, throughout this story, there's a constant saying that goes on all throughout Genesis and Joseph's little narrative. You can read this in chapter 39, verses 2, 3, 5, 21, and 23, and more. And it's that Joseph trusted God and God was with him. You see, in the Hebrew, this is kind of a, um, it's synonymous. When someone says God is with you, it implies that Joseph is trusting God. You can't be with someone who you can't trust. God can't be with you if you don't trust him. So the first point is this. If we're going to forgive well and if we're going to forgive biblically, we have to trust God in order for him to change us. 
See, Joseph did have a close relationship with Jacob. He did have a close relationship with Potiphar as well. But the closest relationship Joseph had, and the only way he could have survived this story, is that he had a close relationship with the Lord. As we've read, these are not easy times for Joseph. These aren't small little things that Joseph is going through. So the only way Joseph can endure these things is that he trusted God. He trusted his plan. And for us today, we're going to have to trust Jesus and his finished work if we have any chance at forgiving biblically. Allow me to tell you a second story. Now, some of you might know this, some of you don't, but um, a few months ago, I was driving home from church. And it was one of those days, you know, in children's ministry, there are only two kinds of days you can have. You can either have a really good day or a really crazy day, and there's no in-between. Sometimes there's a little mix of both, I will admit, but it just depends. You know, you can prepare as much as you want, but you just never know how the kids are going to be once they walk in through that door. And it was one of those crazy days. It was a little bit chaotic. You know, I was quite tired. I was going home. I was just ready to rest. Church was ended. I was going to get lunch, and I was driving in a parking lot right beside my house. And as I'm driving, someone just clips the side of my car, hits it, and I'm in an accident. Now, if you know me, I really love my car. <laughs> it's just kind of my little getaway. You know, if I ever just have too much on my mind, I go for a drive, I clear my head. You know, I love to figure out how it works, like why people built cars the way they did. I'm just, I nerd out on that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a little prized possession for me. And someone just hit it. Someone just hit my prized possession. Um, it was not easy kind of realizing that because, it, you know, when it happened, I just, it didn't really click in my head at first. And the first person I call before I even get out of the car is my mom. Um, I call my mom about everything, whether it's good news or bad news. My mom is the number one lifeline to call. Um, we have a really close relationship. So I call my mom, I tell her I got hit and all that stuff. And you know, the lady who hit me and gets out of her car waiting for me to get out of my car so we can talk. And, you know, I get out of my car and for me, in my head, justifiably so, I'm about to, you know, yell at this lady. I'm about to say some unbiblical language to her after church. <laughs> and I'm about to just let her have it. I'm about to give her all my frustration that I've had from school, all my frustration from church. She's going to hear the whole thing. And I swear to you, this had to be a Holy Spirit thing because I can't do this. I don't have the restraint for it. But I literally had my, I was about to wag my finger at her. I was about to point at her. I was about to say, listen here, you know, all that good stuff. And right before I say something, I just have this thought in my head. And it's like, you know, it's not a thought that you would think of. And I think this is not a godly example. <laughs> What I'm about to say is not something a pastor needs to be saying. And I bit my tongue. And then the first thing she said to me was, are you okay? And that kind of washed everything over. And although it was really frustrating because I had to figure out how I was going to get to school, how I was going to get to church and all those things, 
I don't know why, but God's forgiveness nourished me in that moment. I think we need to reread the end of Genesis 50, 21 real quick. It says that Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The second point is this, that God's forgiveness nourishes us. Yeah, it nourishes us. It does nourish the people we forgive, but it also nourishes us. Now, some versions of the Bible will say that Joseph nourished them instead of comfort them. And I think that drives the point home more than saying comfort. Because when I think of nourishment, I think of being in a desert, dying of thirst, and someone gives you that water to drink. I think of being starving and someone cooks you a home-cooked meal. It's that exclamation of breathing out, of relaxing, that that's what forgiveness does for us. Now, you might be thinking, how does forgiveness nourish us? I mean, of course, when we forgive people, we're kind of, in a way, letting them off the hook to an extent, and, you know, we're giving them something perhaps they don't even deserve. But it also nourishes us because it changes us. When we forgive, we are participating in the act of sanctification. Sanctification just means being more like Christ. So the more we forgive, the more we're like Christ. So forgiveness is a two-way street. Not only are you helping the person you forgive be more like Christ, but you are also making yourself more like Christ. This is why forgiveness is so important, and this is why we can't take it so lightly. The Holy Spirit, the power changes us, the power of the Holy Spirit. When we fill our minds with godly wisdom, it's that two-way street. We're getting something we so desperately need. Back to our story. So Joseph is in prison, and one note that I forgot to mention earlier, but I can mention here, is that Joseph interprets dreams. He's a sort of prophet. He knows the future. And that is one thing that actually got him into trouble with his brothers, was the dreams he had showed him as being a great ruler and ruling over his older brothers. So Joseph is in prison, he's awaiting death, and Pharaoh starts to have dreams. Now, Pharaoh already has a lot of people in his court. He has a lot of dream interpreters. This was a very common thing back in ancient times. However, no one can interpret Pharaoh's dream. No one knows what it means. Everyone tries, and it's just bad news after bad news. He can't, it's just not accurate. Pharaoh gets fed up with it. He gets tired of it. He tells all of his dream interpreters to leave, don't come back. And Pharaoh is desperate enough to call a prisoner named Joseph to say, hey, can you interpret the dream for me? So Joseph comes up and, you know, he meets Pharaoh and Pharaoh pretty much gives him the ultimatum of, hey, if you can interpret this dream, that's great. That's awesome. And if you can't, we're probably going to kill you. <laughs> You know, and I'm sure Joseph was like, well, I guess I'll give it the old college try here. <laughs> I'm sure he said something different, but Joseph hears the dream. He hears Pharaoh's dream, and you can read about this in Joseph's narrative. But pretty much, the dream means this. There's going to be a time where you have plenty. When it comes to the harvest, you're going to have a lot of food. You're going to be rich. It's going to last for a few years. And then you're going to have five years of famine. 
And when you have those five years of famine, you're going to need to save up because no one else is going to have food. You are going to be the only one. The powerhouse that is Egypt is going to be the only people that have anything. So Pharaoh hears this interpretation of the dream and he thinks, man, that is a really good interpretation. I think you are correct in this. And it turns out Joseph is correct in his interpretation. The harvest comes and then the famine comes. And Joseph, through this time, is elevated to a position where he is kind of like a prime minister, so to speak, for Pharaoh. So much so that when you read the Joseph narrative, Pharaoh pretty much gives him the whole power. He's like, you can do whatever you want in Egypt. That's how much I trust you because you saved our people. He gets a name for himself. He becomes quite popular, a hero in Egypt. The whole famine comes and eventually it doesn't just come to Egypt. As I said earlier, it spreads to lands that are neighboring it as well, which means it spreads to Jacob's land. Jacob sends his sons to try and get some food from Egypt and guess who they run into? Joseph. So this time, Joseph is powerful. Joseph can throw them in prison. He can kick them out. He can let them starve. He could kill them if he wants. The Pharaoh wouldn't bat an eye. Joseph now can do exactly what his brothers did to him. And you know what? I'm going to be honest from a human standpoint. He has every right to. He has no reason to give them mercy. By this time, it has been over 20 years since his brothers abandoned him in a ditch and sold him into slavery. Why should Joseph give mercy to them? It's been several years. They told Joseph's father that he's dead. Don't come looking for him. Eventually, Joseph's father does come to Egypt. Eventually, Joseph's father finds out that Joseph is alive, and it's a beautiful thing. As we read in Genesis 50, Joseph does decide to forgive. Not only does he decide to forgive, he provides for his brothers. He provides for his father. Eventually, Jacob, Joseph's father, passes away, and Joseph's brothers are now afraid. They are afraid that Joseph will now exact his revenge. They're afraid that Joseph is going to destroy them, maybe enslave them, maybe kill them. But they're not just afraid, they're actually convicted as well. They're guilty. They feel the guilt. They know the weight of their sin. Genesis 50, 15 through 17 says this, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to them. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions and the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to them. You see, earlier when Joseph revealed that he was in Egypt and that he was powerful, he actually already forgave his brothers. He already pardoned them. But his brothers seemed to not fully get the message. And I think it's because this forgiveness 
is so out of our human thought. You know, I said we trivialize forgiveness. That's why I had that little story about the Lego set. We think of it in just a small way. We compartmentalize it and say, yeah, well, I'm going to work on forgiveness. I'm going to do it. You know, I can forgive these little things here and there. And as soon as something big happens, it's like, whoa. You're telling me that biblically I need to forgive that? I'm not telling you that this is something that happens overnight. It's not with a snap of the finger and then you just... Wow, I forgive somebody. Look at that. It's a long process. The last story I have today, for me, is the most personal. I grew up in a family, as I said, with two older brothers, and I had a mom and dad throughout my childhood. They both worked quite a lot. Um, you know, I saw my mom sometimes, I saw my dad sometimes, but rarely did I see them together because it was like, okay, if one's working, one has to stay at the house, vice versa, that kind of thing. Um, so they worked a lot to provide for us. And as I've already told you, my mom and me, well, we are really close. Um, I pretty much find any excuse in the book to call her every day, even if there's no reason to just say, hey, what's up? That's the relationship we have. My father, on the other hand, is a lot different. You see, my father grew up in a very chaotic household, not in a very biblical setting, and my dad struggled all of his life with prescription drugs and alcohol. For the whole time that I was a child, I remember my dad struggled with these things. Eventually, it would get worse and worse and worse, and by the time I was 18, my mom and dad decided that they would split up. But it didn't really feel so much as a splitting up as it did my dad abandoning me. You see, this was at a time in my life when I was getting ready to go to school. And I really wanted to do something. I have no idea what. I just wanted to go to school. I wanted to go to college. That's what everybody did, I thought to myself. And my dad was the breadwinner, so much so that when my mom and dad separated, we had nowhere to live. We were homeless. I lived in a Motel 6 for a little bit of time, lived in other places, and eventually, by God's grace, people from our church took us in, my mom and I, so we could get back on our feet, and I would not be standing here before you today if it weren't for biblical people doing biblical things to help us in a time of need. It was by God's grace. My father now is in prison. My father hasn't had much contact with me. The only times is to ask for something or ask for money or things like that. And, you know, this is why the story of Joseph really hits me in a personal way, not because I just know it so well, but because you're telling me through this story that I got to forgive my dad you're telling me the person who abandoned me when I needed him, the person who was supposed to be my provider, the person who was supposed to be the person to teach me how to be a man, that's who you're telling me I need to forgive, God? That's what you're telling me I need to forgive, Joseph? But then I remember the story of Joseph. I mean, I'm not trivializing the things I had to go through, but I think the things Joseph had to go through is up there. I had two brothers. 
that were older than me. And, you know, when they were mad at me, I was like, man, that sucks. <laughs> Imagine having 11 brothers who hate you so much that they rather see you dead in a pit. And they think to themselves, hey, you know, let's take it easy on him. Let's make him a slave for the rest of his life and tell his father that he's dead. Don't come looking for him. Yeah, Joseph, I think, has a lot of reason to not forgive. Even Potiphar's wife. Think of that. I mean, this person you trusted betrays you, throws you into prison. There's a lot of forgiveness that Joseph has to do. Yeah. I can tell you this right now. I would have never forgiven my father. It's been 10 years since that time. And it's taken a lot of time to process. But I do forgive my dad. And I would have never forgiven him if I didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. If I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. Verses 18 through 20 say this. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The last point is this, and it might be a little controversial, but I can tell you right now, I fully believe this. We cannot truly forgive if we do not have a relationship with the ultimate forgiver. Can't. You can't. I gave you three stories of differing levels of forgiveness. One is silly, small, insignificant. That's pretty easy to do. The second one is a little harder because it really affects your life. It's inconvenient. You got to figure things out. It's one of those blindside moments in your life, a bump in the road. But then there's forgiveness such as Joseph had to go through. And I'm sure all of us have had a time where we've had to go through this. And I'm telling you right now, you can't do it. Sorry. Can't. You can't do it because you're not strong enough. You can't do it because you are thinking of forgiveness in a human way. Right now, a lot of us in this room, including myself, depending on what you're asking me to forgive, are Joseph's brothers. We're not Joseph. We like to think of ourselves as Joseph and say, yeah, I will forgive. I will be, you know, when that moment comes, I will be that way. But a lot of us, when that moment happens, when someone slights us and someone does something wrong to us, we become Joseph's brothers and say, hey, I need to get back. And that was my attitude for a very long time against my father. I can't really explain it, but God changes us. Having a relationship with Jesus changes us. We hold on to things when we don't trust 
God's plan. We hold on to things when we don't rely on Jesus' saving grace. We are fallen. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then Matthew 11.28 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Guys, Jesus has to be the center of our lives if we're ever going to have biblical forgiveness. If we're going to have true forgiveness, we have to have a relationship with the ultimate forgiver. You see, Joseph in this story is a really good forgiver. He trusts God when he's sold into slavery. He trusts God when he's in prison. He trusts God when his brothers come back. He trusts God all throughout the story. Incredible narrative on forgiveness. The theme is woven throughout. But Jesus is the ultimate forgiver. There's a little something we learn in seminary. It's called a typology. It's okay. You don't need to know about the nerdy stuff. I'll explain what it means. <laughs> Pretty much anyone in the Old Testament, any hero, any figure is what you would call a shadow. They're just the shadow, the prototype of what Jesus would become. And when I was studying this, I think I've come to the conclusion that Joseph is the most type like Jesus out of anyone in the Old Testament. I don't know, but I'm pretty convinced of that. Let me give you some examples real quick here. You see, Joseph was abandoned by 11 brothers. Jesus was abandoned by 12 disciples. Joseph was falsely accused of crimes he didn't commit. So was Jesus. Joseph was thought to be dead by his father. Jesus really did die. Joseph would have his quote-unquote resurrection moment where they find out he's alive and he restores himself to his brothers and his father. Jesus has his real resurrection moment where he restores himself to all of us. Satan meant all of those things for evil for Joseph, and God turned it into good. Satan meant all of those things in Jesus' life for evil, and God turned every single one of them into good, including his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. You see, Joseph was a forgiver. Jesus is the ultimate forgiver. Even when he was being crucified, he says to the thief of the cross, you will be with me in paradise. One of his last words is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We don't have a relationship with Jesus. We can't forgive so in conclusion, three things. We're going to have to trust God. We're going to have to trust his plan for him to change us. Number two, God's forgiveness nourishes us. Biblical forgiveness nourishes us, not just the people we forgive. That might be hard for us to wrap our heads around, but I promise you, every time we forgive, we get a little closer in our sanctification to being more like Christ. But if you don't get number three, you can't have the other two, which is we cannot truly forgive. We can't truly have biblical forgiveness 
we don't have a relationship with the ultimate forgiver, who is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are weak. We are frail and fragile people who can't forgive. We can't do it on our own. God, the only reason Joseph was able to endure so much heartbreak, such betrayal, it's because he had a relationship with you, God. He was close to you. He trusted you. He was faithful. Even when it seemed impossible to be faithful, God, I pray that you can give us just a little bit of Joseph's forgiveness in our hearts. The one that comes from you, God, please help us to be sanctified through forgiveness. God, there are things that take a long time to forgive, and I know that it's not something that just happens overnight. But God, you work on our hearts. You redeem us. You change us. We can only forgive because you forgave us first. God, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who doesn't know that forgiveness, that saving grace through your son, Jesus, let them be convicted. Let them know that they need you. Let them know that there is freedom from sin. All they have to do is put their trust and faith in you. Lord, I thank you, praise you for forgiving me. Someone as wretched as myself, a sinner. Thank you. It's in your son's holy name. Amen.